0: Welcome to Helium Podcast, the final episode. I'm Christine Ogilvie Hendren, here one more time with my good friend, Matt Hotzi. And for this conversation, we went back to a beginning point of our personal journeys in academia by inviting both of our advisor, Dr. Mark Wisner, Professor and Chair of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Duke University, and excellent bass player. In addition to making a big impact on our lives as as a friend and as a sort of scientific older brother, um, and we talk about that some during this episode. He's made significant impacts in a number of fields, including water treatment, environmental nanotechnology, and colloid theory.
1: His accomplishments have been recognized by his peers and have led to his induction as a member of the National Academy of Engineering a few years ago. And so we are so glad that he took time out from his busy schedule to come on the show and share some key insights from his journey with our audience. And... You can hear in this episode that we covered a lot of ground, so I don't need to say too much in introducing the conversation. It's, this conversation is for anyone who is interested in academia, who is either already in it as an assistant professor, as an experienced professor, or someone who just says, what's it like to be a professor? Because Mark has seen a lot of things, and we tried to we tried to get, we tried to pick out you know, some of the best insights that we've heard from him over the years. And I really enjoyed this conversation because it sounded like we were all just having coffee together. And it was nice to to finish up the podcast with this type of an episode.
0: It's been a while since we recorded this conversation. And one thing has stuck with me. Um, and this has happened often over the 16 years I've worked with Mark, where there's like maybe a small nonchalant comment that lands in my brain. And later I realized, man, there's a lot there. So from this episode, it struck me that he mentioned briefly how love is grounded in respect and something I've personally learned so much from um about the way Mark works and I try to emulate myself is the investment in long-term lifetime friendships with colleagues all over the world. Not that you have to be best friends with everyone you publish with, but that it's okay to make room in your work life for your real life too. And a great way to cultivate that is showing up consistently, be able to be counted on, and invite other people you work with to bring themselves and their creativity to make something together. So it's kind of all jazz to mark. Yeah, as Christine mentioned, this is the last episode of the show, and we are
1: grateful for you all who joined us on this ride. Um, I know I learned so much from this process, and I'm I'm thankful to you, Christine, for, for being on the show and creating the show with me. And I think a a meta lesson for me here is that, you know, we were, you know, you focus a lot on getting the show out, getting the show produced, but it's nice to step back in academia and look at the value of the small steps that you're taking along the way. So for those out there that are working toward professor positions or they're just starting out in academia, uh, a lot of it you can see yourself being in the future a National Academy of Engineering member and focusing on that, but really there's just a lot of value in in making progress every day. Um, and we wanted to tell you that, you know, if you love some of the insights from our guests, uh, we wanted to make sure that the show stays posted on iTunes and other uh podcast servers and and the website stays up. So we're hoping that you would consider supporting the podcast. If you've gotten this far, uh, you've obviously gotten some key lessons from the show. And so we set up a page at patreon.com slash helium podcast. And the the money, like I said, will go toward keeping the podcast live and up uh, for others to listen to in the future. And if we have any money left over, we'll definitely use it to buy our guests some coffee if we ever run into them, uh, because they've also taken the time to be on the show and and share their insights.
0: And with that, here's Mark. Well, thank you so much for joining today. It's very fun for us to talk to you. Um, A true story that I cannot believe is that we've been working together for 16 years.
2: Me gads.
0: I know it's our working relationship could legally drive.
2: <laughs>
0: it's insane. Um, so we we just thought we would jump into some um, questions uh, about stuff that we've heard you say over the years, and then just just see what kind of uh, insights, wisdom you want to drop along the way. Does that sound good?
2: Yeah, except that anything I've said over the years is probably <laughs> a little deficit in insight and wisdom. So.
0: <laughs> Okay, well, I'll start with a an easy one. Um, so, uh, over these whole sixteen years, you have consistently said that you have the best job in the world. Um, yeah. So, can you talk about why you say that?
2: Well, I get to work with you guys. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: no, I mean seriously, it is. It's um, it's just so multifaceted being a professor in a U.S. Uh, university. You have. The freedom to to work, I mean, you, you can be a professor and hang out with your students, uh, teaching classes. I've always, I got into this job because I really enjoy teaching and the contact with students. And uh, I have been influenced by, um, as many of us have been, some, you know, important teachers and, you know, trying to, to do the same thing. Uh, try to channel their talents into, to doing the same thing for, for my students. I mean, that, that, that's one reason I wanted to get into this. It's sort of a performance art as well when you're in front of a classroom and I have ones like that. Um, but you also, I mean, you don't have to choose between being in academia or being in an NGO or government or, uh, a, a, a private company. You can literally do it all. So, um, you know, you can work in an advisory capacity for, uh, organizations like, uh, like the EPA, or you can, uh, create, uh, intellectual property and start a company, or you can do consulting for, um, for engineering firms. Um, so it's, um, and then, you know, you also have complete flexibility to, um, define your own problems, um, the, uh, the open endedness of being in research and, and teaching where you can just, you know, it's, you're entirely limited by your own imagination. So that's an attractive aspect of the job. I could probably go on and on, but yeah, no, it's, <laughs> <out the world.
1: laughs> so you mentioned a lot of aspects there. I, I, I wonder if, there's a couple of them that really stand out as, as things that have been especially satisfying to you uh, in terms of the aspects of the job. Or if, if you would answer differently, say, oh, no, it's actually really about the mix.
2: No, I mean, without a question, the most satisfying aspect of the job is seeing the success that the people I've had the privilege of working with have had in their you know, going forward in their careers. That, without a question, is the most satisfying part of the job.
1: And I I think that's a lot of, you know, when you think about the mix and and the choices that you have as a young assistant professor, that is, it's almost like a struggle, right? It's like you're going to the mega-mart and you've got all these different options, right? As opposed to just going to the French market and they're like, actually, we have one kind of apple. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have 12. Right. Um, and so we've heard you say that um, now you view assistant professors as holding the most creative power and influence in the academy. And I think it's because of this freedom of choice, but how do they, you know, as a new assistant professor, and a lot of our audience are, are people that are e- either assistant professors or aspiring assistant professors, how do they balance this, right? How do they balance the the super, the super supermarket super choice versus focusing down on, on a very particular, uh, you know, leverage
2: point, if you will? You mean in terms of choice of like, where they're going to well, do their work and
1: all you can do, right? Because you just listed off a whole yeah. list of, of things that are options in academia. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I see what you're saying. Well, uh, I think it's important, uh, uh coming up through academia. It's important to, in the initial stages, keep your eye on the ball. You got to get tenure. And so that means making the basic metrics of, of, of teaching service and, and uh, and research, so you've got to, you know, you've got to work hard on getting the research dollars in and supporting your students. Um, you know, I, I think that's really critical. There are places where, where faculty don't necessarily support their students, and um, I didn't come up to that sort of a culture, and I, I think um, that's that's an important aspect of it. Anyway. Um, yeah, getting, making sure that you've got a a funded research program, if you're in that sort of an institution, making sure that, that you're, you know, doing interesting teaching. And then the other aspects really all come into the service. And the, the question is, is I think your question is, is how do you balance all those other things? And it will be considered when one goes up for, um, for tenure. But I think that many of the things, you know, service on boards, uh, 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 editorial boards, service on, um, uh, to, you know, to, uh, to government agencies, uh, service in a much broader sense, I think is much more of a factor when you're promoted from associate with tenure to full professor. In other words, mm-hmm. the way I kind of simplify it is that, the You get tenure for showing that you've got really good ideas and you can support them and get them out there in the marketplace and you can get students going through the program. But the to get promoted to full professor, um, it's not just doing more of the same. um, It's taking it to the next level, which means having some international profile and leadership and everything. Now, having said that I th- I'm sorry you are going to ask
1: something. But no, I it's a, kind of a follow-up question right. thinking about the funding, right? So you you're you you need to write oodles and oodles of proposals obviously. But you know, service in a way kind of opens the door to some of those proposal opportunities. So I you know, or at least that's that's my thinking, right? So there there does need to be some of that right because you need to make connections at the let's say at the nsf or epa and i think that is something that um i mean it's i think it's clear when you get to yeah. when you get later on in your career that those are things you can really pivot to and really make a difference and right. give back but there are certain key elements that you need to put in place to make sure that you're you're not uh just writing proposals in uh in a
2: in a vacuum. box, right? <laughs> yeah, no, you make, you make a really important point, which is that there are kinds of service that were, are more helpful to an assistant professor than others. So serving, like you say, on review panels and getting an idea of how the process works and seeing, you know, what other people think about the quality of different kinds of proposals, that's Yeah, that's, that's really important. And that's the kind of thing that you want to see on a normal assistant professor's dossier coming up. Um, also, uh, so I, as, as chair now of the department, I mean, one of the, I tend to try to minimize the, the service to the department that, um, assistant professors have to do. But there are a few things that I think are important for them to do. Uh, one is to be involved in the, um, in the seminar program because it's an opportunity to bring people in that will uh, be more aware of your research and that you can connect with and can be potential letter writers down, down the road. The other one is um, uh, being on the, the search committees uh, because again, it gives you a sense of, you know, what a good dossier is, but it also hopefully you're going to make your career at that institution. And it gives you a chance to, to really mold the, kind of place that you want to work at. So
0: that's a really um, interesting kind of a dual point, you know, about uh, trying to build the culture and also build your experience kind of looking under the hood Um, and related to Matt's question and what you were just talking about. You have also mentioned seeing in the past um, assistant professors as holding kind of the most creative power and influence in the academy. And that when you first told me that I thought, Oh, that's feels opposite just because of, you know, the, the fact of ranks. Right. Um, but I, I think you make really interesting points with this and I wonder if you would, uh, go into those.
2: Well, I mean, so first of all, I think, I think it's, it's the assistant professors that are the intellectual powerhouse in terms of new ideas that come in. that that's probably obvious to, to most people, but, um, uh, it, it sometimes is is forgotten in, in the wash uh, of things. And um, the, the other thing is that the assistant professors, just from a socioeconomic standpoint, they're the most mobile. They're the ones that can really go anywhere. So when you don't have tenure and you have a really, you're, you're really, you've got great ideas and, and people know about those ideas. You're the most marketable person, um, you know, out there. And so, Um, that means that you have, um, leverage at your institution in some sense. Uh, and I don't think assistant professors widely recognize that, uh, it's more the threat of not getting tenure. That is the thing that, that I think all of us remember going up for, for tenure rather than, than our desirability on the marketplace.
0: Right, and it I think uh what you're touching on there has really come up in a few of our different conversations, which is that people lose sight as you often do in the face of incentives that are uh, directly quantifiable of the whole the bigger picture, and so would, yeah. to your point, you're saying, okay, it's about the ideas. whoever has the best ideas and is figuring out how to play their cards to make those ideas come to fruition,
2: yeah um. The, the other thing is, is, I mean, there, there are, so there are different qualities of networks that are formed. And of course, we're, we're, you know, in a, in a intellectual enterprise, it's all about the, the connections between ideas and the, 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 the networks that assistant professors uh, belong to coming out of graduate school and some of the more uh, informal interactions and, um, you know, friendships that, that, that might be forged along the way. I mean, I, it's very, very different from the more staid and important, you know, networks that are formed um, later. So I, you really have to have both. And I, I think that you can't say that one is more important than the other.
1: So I want to go back to something you said about um, is it, you, we we're sort of focused, as you can tell, on junior faculty, assistant yeah, professors, right. you know, uh, the experienced folks don't really uh, download podcasts and look for advice, (laughs) (laughs) but it's nice, right. To be able to have all these mentors sort of virtual mentors via the podcast. And we've gotten some feedback that people just love the idea that they can have a virtual conversation, not really, but have a conversation through the podcast and listen to it as they're going to work or something like that. So, one of the key points and i wanted to get your take on this that we've taken out of other conversations with senior faculty is uh, people kind of shopping around it for when they're when they're looking for a job right because right. The, the you talked about the fear but there's also the fear of not getting a job right and so it, it can blind you to the situation that you're walking into right and so as a in in what's a someone who's got a great um, you know, packet, sorry, a great application, all this other stuff. Uh, what kinds of things can they, um, do on their interview and look for when they're looking at different departments to make sure that they're walking into a situation that is going to be positive for them and allow them to continue to build their careers?
2: Yeah. Well, I think number one in any interview situation that, you know, what everybody always says is have really good questions. I mean, just go in with lots and lots of questions. So that means, you know, looking at, for example, a department's website and uh, having an idea of what other people do and sort of imagining how you might interact with them and, and have questions for them. So uh, rather than tell them how you can interact with them, sort of probe them and get them make, make them understand through your questions that you have some, some commonality. And then, um, uh, you know, people always, um, feel that in a conversation that the person who does, if, if, if they talk, if, if that one individual speaks a lot, the person they've been speaking with, uh, they perceive them as being intelligent. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, so, okay. Um, but the, um, the other thing is, uh, or another thing is, um, that when, when, um, you know, you're looking through uh, what, what uh, an institution does, I mean, you don't want to, I think you don't want to kind of bend your, your interests. You want to have a, get a balance between having an open mind to where you could go with your career versus, um, making compromises uh, that would take you in places where it's not, you're selling yourself for something that's not a good fit. So I can think of, uh, and I, you guys have both heard me say this, but I mean, when I was applying for faculty positions, I was rejected from so many, I can't find it, but I had a file that was like really thick with all of the rejection. And I won't, since this is a podcast, I won't name names, <laughs> but, uh, but there are places I were reje- I was rejected from that I you know in retrospect was really glad I didn't go there because it would have been a a terrible fit and I wouldn't have been able to do the kinds of things that I want to do. So I, you know, on one hand, I think being open to going anywhere, um, I never dreamed ever dreamed that I, that I would end up in Houston, Texas as an assistant professor. It was just not geographically an area that I wanted to go to. And it was a terrific place to be an assistant professor. Um, and, um, so I think, you know, having an open mind about mobility is, is important. Um, although there is a trend to, um, for people to uh, be more French in this regard and stay closer to home, I'm understanding.
0: That's funny. Yeah. It's interesting. um, You know, you just talking about making yourself at home with some level of uncertainty tolerance is important, but while at the same time kind of making sure that you're following your own compass. Um, And with that in mind, I'm kind of wondering, um, you know, with higher education changing a little bit uh, over the years, right like different outside factors are changing, um, I'm curious if you have any reflections on what incoming or junior faculty now, how does their trajectory differ, and how does the ecosystem they face differ from maybe what you saw coming in um, and you know what advice and caution would you offer in kind of seeing this big picture where things are going versus the- right. You
2: know, yeah, I, I see less of a difference with faculty starting now compared with when I started uh, than when the situation that I've faced versus my advisors. But I, but I do see a gradient there, so that uh, the the difference between me and my advisor, uh, uh, there's also a difference between me and others. So, so what is that difference? I mean, so. When, when I was in graduate school, the norm was that you would uh, finish your dissertation, go do a postdoc, write up the papers based on your dissertation, and look for faculty jobs. Um, and now, if you haven't already published a few papers before you graduate, you're sort of a nobody. Um, I mean I'm exaggerating, but that, you know that's, that's one difference. Another difference is that um, I think there there's an expectation that uh, faculty and junior faculty included, um, irrespective of what we were saying earlier about um, kind of the jump that one makes from associate to full, but even junior faculty, are expected to have some sort of an international profile. So you have to be everywhere. And... You know, my advisor didn't travel that much. Um, but now I sort of see people having to hustle to go to all sorts of exotic places. And it's fun. I mean, you know, it is, it, there, there's definitely an element of fun to it, but it's, it also takes you away. There's a cost. It takes you away from, from other things. And, um, it, it could be family. It, it could be just ecclesiality in your department. Uh, certainly, it's going to be taking away from contact time with your students. Um, so that that sort of travel aspect and having to be, you know, everywhere, because if you're not there, you don't exist, that's that's another element of it. Then there's um, the pressure for research dollars and the ease in obtaining those research dollars. So I think the NSF, you know, funding for a standard single PI um, Uh, project is not that different now than it was when um, my advisor was writing uh, grants and except that that would go a lot further than than it does now Um, now I'd have to go back and actually check data and see if that's true but that's that's my my impression there's not that much difference and um, and the ease and competitiveness in getting those um, are very different so uh and there there are things there are elements that have to be put into a proposal now, like uh, broader impacts and um, you know doing the outreach and and so on. So that means there there's one more thing that you need to have in your toolkit and one more bit of networking that you need to do in order to to do that credibly so there yeah there are additional aspects to the job that I don't think my advisor had. Uh, I've had it coming up, and I've just seen the bar get higher and higher as uh, uh, as the years go by.
1: So you mentioned this international profile, and uh, we asked Greg about this a little bit actually on yeah. on the show. what's the I mean, you could probably either talk about you how how you choose to say yes or no to to international trips. Or how you would imagine or advise someone who is just starting as an assistant professor, what kind of rubric or whatever should they use to decide to say yes to these trips? Because as you say, there's opportunity cost, right? So they're leaving something else behind in order to say yes. And they're feeling pulled in all these different directions, thinking I need to be in Asia and Europe this month. Uh, but how, how to choose, right? How to choose your opportunities, especially for traveling.
2: Well, I, th- I think, so there's a few dimensions to that. So one is, I think one of the biggest challenges that a, an assistant professor has is getting really good students into their group. You, you need to make that happen. I think that's a primary concern. You need to do it quickly, uh, you, because the tenure clock runs pretty fast. And so if, if you wait until you have funding and, um, then it's just not going to happen. So you have to, you have to make bets that they should be Good bets, and that means that you need to to depend on pipelines. And the international pipeline is is one that you can work at. When I went to went to to Rice uh, as an assistant professor, I mean there was a groundwater center there. I wasn't working in groundwater, and everybody that applied there wanted to work in groundwater. I was looking for people that were interested in membranes. So you know, I, I really worked the international student pool to find really smart people that were working on that, and I think that. Um, one way to work that pool is, is to go and attend conferences and kind of get to know people. And, um, that, um, that, that can be, be very useful. And I've, I've, I've noticed a lot of successful assistant professors that really hit the ground running. They, they have some sort of pool like that, that they can dip into. Um, and not, aspect of that is just access to, uh, different ideas and so on. So, um, the, uh, you, you know, going around and, and seeing what other people are thinking and getting outside of your own box is certainly an important thing to, for an assistant professor to be involved in. So.
1: This is more of a specific question, but did you actually, did you actually, how did you get connected with uh, you know your first few graduate students? Because I didn't know you had connections in that part of the world. Did you go to a uh, the conference there,
2: or no, no? Well, so the the uh, there were some Indian students who were um, really phenomenal. That uh, they just you know kind of ran them in the pool there. The the people who applied. And so you look at the, it's, first of all, it behooves you to understand a bit about the, those countries and yeah. uh, what the quality institutions are. And so these were people that were coming from good institutions. And uh, so that was part of it. But I also got some students. I had, I had connections, as you know, in France. And so I got students through, through that uh, and postdocs uh, through that, um, that channel as well. Gotcha.
0: That is a perfect lead-in to another thing that, of course, um, we want to talk to you about. So, it's one interesting fact: is that, okay, so Matt uh, met his wife in France right. because of traveling with, you know, being in the Wisner group, right? And thank you, Mark.
1: I'm uh, <laughs> <we're Yeah. laughs> grateful. <laughs>
0: Actually, both of us are in marriages that happened because of the Mark Wisner lab group. So yeah. there's,
2: there's, well, there's a, a byproduct of being in graduate school. But, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, uh, but also a, a really neat part of this, which, I'm, you know, I've worked in industry and startups and government, and different things. And, and part of the academic family tree, the way that our culture that we happen to come up in is 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 there is that longevity of... Um, of relationship, and so I just, um, you know, I know that this is different for every person, but I wonder if you would speak to sort of these long-term science friendships and and international relationships and colleagues, and what impact do you think that that has had on on your ideas and your your you know, orientation toward being in academia in general, it's just, it's been a really fun part for me of being part of this whole academic family tree. And, um, and I know it's a, a thing that you take really good care of and get a lot of great things out of. So what are your yeah. thoughts on there?
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's been um, absolutely vital. I mean, I didn't, in terms of those those relationships, uh, those collaborations, I mean, it's not, necessarily a family tree, they're collaborators. So like Jean-Yves Bautreau, I knew nothing about fractals until Jean-Yves, you know, told me, started telling me about fractals uh, back in the, you know, mid eighties. Um, I knew nothing about membranes until I was working in France and in the middle of, of all of this competition between the two big French giant, you know, uh, private groups that both wanted to get into membranes. And, uh, uh, so, yeah, there's that. Um, but I think it was another element to your question that it had to do more with family tree, uh, sorts of uh, academic family tree things. So,
0: yeah, I think I asked about seven questions in that whole thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> just, um, what is the, uh, the effect of having these long-term science
2: yeah.
0: friendships on, um, yeah. you know, either your, scientific hypotheses, which is kind of what you're speaking to, or just your enjoyment of the job, you know? Do you think it plays into both?
2: Um, Yeah, it certainly plays into both. Um, You you know, one aspect of forming uh, those relationships and your network in some way, I don't really see those friends as the network, but I would be naive to, to actually... Believe that. <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, it's all about trust, right? Once you 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 work you work with people, and they know that they can count on you, you know, to deliver a letter of support or a letter of evaluation, or uh, to develop a uh, you know to to put your part in on a collaborative paper, or to uh, work on international. Uh, uh, protocols, uh, you know, where you're on a committee together. So that, that level of trust, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's important to deliver on that. And once you have those friendships, I mean, then, 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 you know, um, I I just think there's, there's a mutual level of of respect that's, that, that's important. And I've always said that, that uh, the path to love is through respect. So uh and there there is a lot of love that that exists in uh in those those communities. So I just got back from uh this last uh, uh week I was up in uh, Massachusetts for an International Water Association uh meeting on particle separation. Now this is a very mature field. It's not really uh, some it's not a conference I would go to for um inspiration and new research ideas but it is a community that um, connects back into all the people that I loved and admired uh, coming up as a graduate student. Uh, um, They're all my heroes in in the field uh, of of particles uh, were involved in this, in this committee. So, um, you know, you you go and it's, it's uh, many of those people are are gone now, but um, uh, still you connect with, with that community. And I, that's, that's an enriching sort of thing. And it also um, just reinforces this notion that, yeah, I'm here. Uh, There's, there's this level of trust. And when, when one uh, um, needs something and we all, you know, uh, these things come up, as I said, it's often as simple as a letter of support for a proposal that you're putting in, then they're there for you. So So
1: even though you have a, a, a very extensive network. Well, we we'll network, whatever we want to call it. Right. Um, there are times where you're collaborating with new people, right? I mean, it oh, yeah. comes up every once in a while. So what's your approach to building that trust?
2: Uh, like Does I that, say, deliver you, you just have deliver. to deliver. Yeah. Do things on time and, and with quality. Don't do rush jobs.
0: Um, One thing I'm curious about just watching, um, you know, giving our opportunity to work together within Saint and some of the bigger networks that we have worked in. um, I wonder if you could share your insight on, uh, you know, a couple keys to leading large teams with success. You know, how do you inspire and keep creativity and engagement alive? What are are your kind of top points for you got to do this, you got to not do this other stuff?
2: Yeah, well, uh, first of all, find people that you're really going to enjoy working with. Um, I, th- I think that if you're forced to collaborate with people that have a way of working, which, which might be fine for them, but it, you know, is somehow incongruous with your own mode of work that that can be a problem. And sometimes they're just obviously personality issues, which you want to avoid if if you can in the formulation of any collaborative effort. Um, another thing is, I think just from a management perspective, uh, people often say, and I've found this to be true that, that the real challenge of a manager is to find out what everybody's good at and let them do that. Um, so, um, You know, I'm there are there are, um, you know, one approach to to doing a collaboration is to have a very top down structure of the uh, the the objectives that are going to be accomplished and to go after those. Um, My approach would be more of what are the areas that we're interested in and everybody just, you know, contribute to that. Um. So much more about um uh letting people explore things in more of a an artistic uh you know fashion than a uh than a engineering firm sort of fashion you, you know me i'm I make lots of analogies to music, so yeah, I was waiting for
1: the jazz one
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah right yeah, <laughs> close enough for jazz right.
0: Well, it's funny that you say art, too, because um, I remember I I was not considering grad school beyond getting a professional master's. And I was taking your um, transport class and you showed those old black and white film movies of Eddie's, you know, and uh, you just kind of offhand were commenting. Isn't it cool? Like, look at this beautiful art. And, you know, we can we can quantify that. We can like predict what was happening there. And I had always felt like I had to choose between art and a quantitative life. And I just thought, Oh my gosh, maybe, maybe I don't. So I, I think that you collect people around you that have this artistic appreciation that feel like they don't have to choose if, if they're, you know, doing scholarship around you. So it's, it's been neat to see what that, what that builds in terms of science and also community.
2: Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that in you guys. I, I think you're right. I do probably have a bias to to um, wanting to work with, with with people like like that. But one of the one of the attractive aspects about this job, to go back to why it's such a great job, is I mean, one of the things that, that attracted me to to this is that it is like art. Like I say, it's it's a creative enterprise. It's open ended. Um, uh you're really only limited by your own imagination which which is a plus or a minus i mean everybody that comes through my my doctoral program i they have to you know kind of get their their forty days in the desert you know trying to come up with um, <laughs> trying to come up with a, a research topic and um that um, different people react to that differently um but I think it is important to go through it because you're going to go through it your whole career,
1: yeah. And I appreciate it more yeah. now than I ever did then. <laughs> <laughs> now the,
0: the sort of. Uh, <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead, no, no, I was it's just the learn by doing you can't, you can't read about. And sometimes you'll feel entirely lost and drowning in uncertainty. And here's what to do when you face that you can't study that in bullet points. What were you going to say, Matt?
1: (laughs) No, that's, I mean, that's, that's the appreciation and just the space, right? I mean, having now I have three kids, you just don't realize how much space you have to think. And Mm. uh, it's beautiful. It really is.
0: Well, and I kind of think it it goes back to the, the path to love Love is through respect and, you know, the, the other messages about you got to deliver, there is a certain level of responsibility you have to be given responsibility and fully understand what it is to own that mm-hmm. in order to kind of, um, I don't know if earns the word I mean, but um, but to to feel that you convince yourself you can accomplish this thing, it whatever it me, is that you choose this thing to mean.
1: Yeah. And it makes me think of the back going back to the trust thing where you're, I mean, we're, we're kind of going on a tangent here, but the trusting thinking about giving your graduate students that trust and just saying i trust you and there's this psychological effect the pygmalion effect right and if you're if you're tell if you're signaling to your students i trust you to be in this space and figure it out then you're like i'm a trustworthy person so therefore i will perform right. you know and it, it's like a mirror effect of that of giving your graduate students that space and it's something i don't I didn't have a label for, but I appreciate more than I, than I used to. But that's just age, I guess.
0: <laughs> I have a related question, which I just thought of during this. Is um, You know, the other part of it is, sure, you trust somebody that they can find their way. But the other fact about anything um, daring and risky and artistic is that it could 100% could fail. And yeah. that's like a hypothesis. So um, do you have any thoughts on failure and uh, the relationship t- to that? In,
2: uh, in- yeah, it's the standard thought. You got to be, you got to fail. I mean, you know, it's failure is not a bad thing. It's just, it's part of the process. So, mm-hmm. you know, you practice an instrument, it goes wrong. Um, you just go back and do it again. You, uh, people that, that do entrepreneurship always say, you know, you start a company, it folds. Well, you know, we get back up and do another one. And so, yeah, it, it's, if, if you're not failing, you're not pushing the envelope.
1: Yeah. That's true. It's kind of boring too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Even, yeah. Even as annoying as smell. it is,
1: it's really boring not to fail. <laughs>
0: Well, this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Do you have any? Uh, this
2: has been a lot of fun. Uh, what a nice conversation to have.
0: Yeah, we're uh, we're really pleased to have you. Kind of uh, round out the the helium conversations. We've had a bunch of different ones, and it just seemed a perfect fit to kind of end on the conversation that actually got Matt and I both into this whole game. So, yes. what an honor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Same. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Really
0: appreciate it.
2: All right. Well, thank you guys. All right. all
1: right. I hope you all enjoyed episode 35 of Helium Podcast with Mark Wiesner. And thanks again to Mark for joining the show. You can find out more about this episode at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 35. And again, this is the last episode that we're planning to record for Helium Podcast. So if you loved the show, you love some of the insights you got over the last 35 episodes, please consider going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Helium Podcast. And, and toss us a few bucks just to keep the show live know, Keep it up on iTunes servers and other servers that will allow people to download for, for future years to get some of the insights from our guests. And again, if we have any money left over, we'll use that to buy coffees for uh, our former guests if we run into them in real life. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate you as an audience. Never hesitate to contact us if you have any questions about the podcast or the, the guests that we had on the show. We love you. Take care. Now I'm out.